2: Julia Stein a few times, um, and I think I first became aware of her work um, when, uh, I think, Wanda Coleman said that she was a riot to look out for in the LA Times. What year was that? 98? (laughs) 99? Something like that, you know? Um, And uh, we're here for her book, What Were They Like?, as well as a book that uh, she also worked on, edited, called Every Day is an Act of Resistance. Let me read this to you. Stein writes as if Whitman met up with Sumerian myths by way of Hemingway. What Were They Like is Julia Stein's fifth book of poetry. She has also edited two books, Walking Through a River of Fire, 100 Years of Triangle Factory Fire Poetry, and Every Day is an Act of Resistance, selected poems of Carol Tarlin. From the feminist and Holocaust Holocaust poetry work of her first book, Under the Ladder to Heaven, to her poetry about the Central American Wars in the 1980s, and her second book, Desert Soldiers, to the love poems and poems about teaching in South Central during the 1992 troubles Woman, Walker, woman. Stein's poetry ranges from love lyrics to explorations of war, peace, and work. Please welcome Julia Stein.
1: Okay. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm gonna be reading from two books. First, last year, oh, I, I, I edited a book, Every Day is an Act of Resistance, selected poems of Carol Tarlin. Can you hear me in back? Okay, Carol Tarlin was a wonderful San Francisco poet, a cross between, and short story writer. If Hemingway and Tilly Olson were crossed and be a woman writing in the last 30 years, that would be Carol Tarlin. She was a friend of mine. She unfortunately died in 2004, and this is her first book of poetry. Uh, the best way to get a sense of her was just, I think, hearing a couple of the poems. She writes narratives telling the stories about her life and also there's an uh, in- introduction by her friend Jack Hirschman, a poet who is Poet Laureate of San Francisco and I did a very good biographical sketch here. Um, okay. The, so I'll read a couple poems from this and then I'll read from my book. This is called White Trash, an Autobiography. And <laughs> She's talking about, the poem happens 1948 right after World War II, when antibiotics were just coming online to helping with diseases like dysentery, which you got from polluted water. My daddy was a truck driver. In Salinas, he hauled lettuce. When I was five, We lived in a three-room trailer. My mother, who played little squirrels with us when it rained. My brother, sister, and I, who pretended we lived in trees, gathered nuts. And it was never winter. We always ate. And my father, who never went to high school, who wasn't a vet because he had been kicked out of the army on a Section 8 who once was a fireman on the railroad, who was a teamster, who never crossed a picket line, never scabbed. Our friends were Mexicans, Indians, Okies, farm workers, gas station attendants, tax drivers, taxi drivers, carpenters, communists, ex-cons, out of work, red, brown, and white trash. We didn't have lawns, Instead, we shared the gravel, the wash tubs, the showers, the toilets. My little brother and I played in the fields behind the trailer court. We found an irrigation ditch to wade in. I pushed in my brother and he fell down, stuck his hands into the slimy water, lifted his fingers to his mouth and he licked. That night, he woke up with a bellyache and diarrhea. It lasted a week. I watched from my bunk bed as he sat on the pot in the middle of the room, his shit turning to blood, blood turning to a thin, clear liquid. His ribs protruded from his white skin. His red hair shone luminous in the dark. Sores grew on his lips. He was all the time thirsty. He went to the hospital. After two weeks, the doctors told my mother to take him home, to die. Instead, she took him to a university medical center. He was given antibiotics and lived. He got lots of toys. One was a stringed horse that wobbled and danced when you pushed the wooden knob it stood on. His His favorite was a book called The Little Pond. It had pictures of animals with their faces dipped in bright blue water, deer, raccoons, sparrows, rabbits. Mommy tried to read it to us when he was well, but she always cried. She said that when he was sick, she sat by his bed day and night, and listened to him beg for water. Summer came. The lettuce shriveled in the fields. Daddy got laid off, and we moved to Reading. The trailer park we lived in had grass and oak trees. In the evening, when the air cooled, we sat with the neighbors under the oaks. The woman talked, the men played dominoes, the children ran, pushed, shouted, lizards climbed on our legs, giggling, we shut them off. Daddy lost his job, we moved to Folsom. Hospital bills followed us up and down California, and we never paid. Anyway, as uh, she has a number of autobiographical poems, and the autobiographical poems continue as she gets jobs, she put herself through schools through an m a in san francisco state an m a in English. Uh, she had two daughters and uh, jobs she was a, since she had type 1 diabetes, she always needed medical care, so she was a clerical worker at uh, in uh, UC San Francisco for the medical benefits, and she was an Ask Me and union activist and active on the uh, San Francisco AFL CAO Labor Council. Anyway, uh, I love the work poems because she's funny. She's very, very funny. Anyway, um, let's see, where's my poem? Oh, this is called Today. It's about taking the day off from work with pay. Today, I slept into the sun eased under my eyelashes. The office phone rang and rang. No one answered. Today, I wrote songs for dead poets, danced to Schubert's 8th Symphony, which he never had time to finish, right turning, right leg turning and Danto Carmelto, arms sweeping the ceiling as leaves fell, green and golden, autumn in Paris. I sat in a bistro and sipped absinthe, while Cesar Vallejo strolled past, his dignity betrayed by a little hole in his pants, and I waved today, and the dictaphone did not dictate, and the files remained empty, and the boss's coffee copter remained empty, when the, while the ghosts, ghosts of my ancestors occupied my chair and threatened all who disturbed their slumber. Today, when I sat in bed, nibbling croissants and reading The New Yorker in San Francisco, and I did not make my daughter's lunch, I did not pay the PG&E bill, I did not empty the garbage on my way out the door to catch the bus, to ride the elevator, to sit on the desk on time, because today I took the day off. And the rain drenched the skins of lepers, and they were healed. Red flags de- decorated the doorways of senior set- centers and everyone received their social security checks on time. And I walked the streets at 10 a.m. in the morning, praised the sun in his holiness, led a revolution, painted my toenails purple, meditated in solitude today on this day when I took Wispay the day off." <laughs> okay. Okay, just one little more poem of her work poems. I think she was writing some of the best... I think she's one of the best poets in America. It's, thank you for your 15 years of service to the department. Pink slipped into oblivion. The supervisor kindly grants me permission to use the office laser printer to update my resume. Under skills, I list my abilities, my liabilities, age, attitude, little software knowledge, lack of hard drive. (laughs) With clarity as searing as sun glare on water, I write this poem on the last day on company time. Okay, this is Carol Tarlin. Uh, She has, this is her first book. She died in 2004. Uh, Buy this book and you can help get her next work. There's 500 other pages of poetry and short stories I'd like to get out in subsequent books. Anyway, that's Carol Tarlin. Now onto my book. Um, This is my book, What Were They Like? The cover is by the great, uh, wonderful artist, J. Mocker Walker, who's here. Thank you, Michael. Okay, okay, thank you. And Michael's been doing a lot of illustrations of literary works and also curated shows of them, you know. uh, Anyway, um, I wrote this about the Iraq-Iran war, and I will start with a poem about my mother, which explains some of it. My Mama Remembers. Mama, remember all the stories you and grandmother told me. Great-grandfather in Russia loved Tolstoy the pacifist. Hated the Russian army empire, wanted his sons not to be drafted into the Russian army, Jewish boys never seen again. Immigrated in 1906 to America, the Pittsburgh snowy streets, once a teacher in Russia he was reduced to selling newspapers on the streets, believed President Wilson would keep us out of war. When Wilson broke all his promises, great-grandfather had a broken heart attack and died. You told me the story so many times. Mom, remember our uncle stayed out of World War I. My brother celebrated his heart murmur, keeping him out of the Vietnam War. You always sent money to the Quakers. If you were too old to march against the latest wars, I marched for you against the Gulf War in 1992. Now, over a hundred years after my family arrived in America, I marched against this Iraq War for us. My mama was happy that the anti-war Democrats won in 2006. When the war went on, she fell to the floor. I help her up. Oh, mama. Don't fall again. Two years later, she falls to the floor, breaks her hip, operated on in the hospital, painfully relearns how to walk. Oh, mama, remember. And she does. And she wants to send money to stop the war. Okay. Uh, That's my mother. uh, Okay. Uh, when I was in college at Berkeley and UCLA, I studied medieval Islamic history. So I, had a, I, I did a paper at UCLA on scientific achievements of is, uh, medieval Islam and, and achievements in technology. So I, I you know, I, I decided that as the war Sort of crumbles Baghdad. I would build it up in poetry. Anyway, this poem is a true story. It's called Iraqi Poet Society. It's after uh, the U.S. sort of, after Saddam Hussein collapsed and U.S. conquered the country. A lot of some Iraqis really were, had some ideas of rebuilding the country. Iraqi Poet Society. That day, Abdullah al-Baghdadi watched the huge statue of the tyrant Saddam knocked down, falling on its back, a rope around its neck. He dreamed of an Iraqi poet society, searched for all the last poets in Baghdad, sent letters, taxis, and messengers across the city, looking for the hiding poets, the suffocated poets, the lost poets, the band poets, the poets who had spent three decades like the walking dead. He had dreams. The suffocated poets would have air to breathe. The hiding poets would walk the streets. The lost poets would be found at the new poetry headquarters in Baghdad. The the band poets would now meet weekly for readings and publish in a monthly magazine. The poets who had been the walking dead would resurrect to invite Westerners to come to Baghdad to read, and to meet Iraqi poets now reborn. In the first few months, when the poets resurrected and sent al-Baghdadi messages, his dreams grew that poems would erase all the roadside bombs, the concrete blast barriers, the blown-up cars, poems to rebuild his country verse by verse, Poems to erase the scars of the tyrant's torture, stanzas to heal the broken human hearts, verses to shore up the economy. They found a building by the Tigris. Iraqi poets now were breathing poems again for a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Poems sprouted and grew like a huge bush spreading out over the building, a virtual forest explosion of poems marching up and down the Baghdad streets. Still, al-Baghdadi held on to his, when they began the terrible t- count, one poet was threatened, one poet was kidnapped, one was killed, one fled abroad. Still, al-Baghdadi held on to his poems, his buildings, when suicide bombs exploded on the street, leaving corpses and the wounded. The warring militias grew, divided up the neighborhoods. Refugees fled in cars, packed with suitcases. The poets felt policemen born in their heads, the inner cops growing in their skulls, barbed wire growing around their hearts. When a car bomb blew up Baghdad's poetry headquarters, al-Baghdadi stood still, squinting through the dust and debris, watching the debris flying through the air in all directions. Anyway. Uh, I had a series of poems about uh, Abu Ghraib, uh, but I wanted to read a poem about one of the persons who's least known. And he's the whistleblower from Abu Ghraib. His name was Joe Darby. And when I heard about him, I realized Uh, The way it was presented, these people did these terrible things were these weirdos from West Virginia. I grew up in, I was born in Baghdad. I mean, I am not Baghdad. I was born in Pittsburgh. And then, sorry. sorry. And Joe Darby was also from Western Pennsylvania. He knew all these guys. And I thought, oh my God, these are people who grew up and were born very close to where I was born, and my family was for a long time. Local boys etc. So this is for, jo- what, uh, his friends were in the hard site taking all these photos, and they gave it to Joe Darby on a CD. I mean, they were all friends, and then CD, Joe Darby gave it to a supervisor, and that's how the world knew about it. Okay, this is what happened to Joe Darby. He can't go home again to the Green Hills. Joe Darby's home was in the green hills of western Pennsylvania, not far from where I was born. Back home, his army buddies he turned in lived just down the road. Back home, he had seen them on leave on the streets. Back home, he would passed by banners and flags on the storefront for them, for all of them. When he turned in the photos of his army buddies humiliating prisoners at Ebergrave, he asked to stay anonymous. He wanted to go home. Again, home was where they loved you. Small town Maryland, right across the border from his family in West Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. Home was summer barbecues, family trips to the Maryland coast, deep-sea fishing troops, trips with his brother-in-law. His wife's sisters were his sisters. At home he helped out his mother with cancer, cleaning, cooking, paying the bills. I have dreams of Western Pennsylvania and the Depression. The the government abandoned the miners and their families to starve. My great aunt risked her life to organize to get them food. My grandparents ran a little grocery store in Carnegie, gave a lot of credit in the Depression. My grandfather's stomach cancer drove us to Los Angeles. Only in the 1990s I've been back. After the mines, the mills shut down, the economy economy collapsed again. And after the government abandoned them again. How they tried to make a life a dignity in those harsh green hills. Young men like Joe get jobs as long-haul truckers, or in the military, or reserves. Army's the only way out, the ticket to college. It's hard on wives like Joe's wife, Bernadette. Her husband's away eight months in Bosnia, three years in Iraq. Most families are used to the long goodbyes. In his hometown, everybody had a brother, a husband, a cousin. In the army, the reserves, they hated a man who put Americans in jail for the enemy. The army promised to keep him anonymous. In the Iraq mess hall, Joe watched Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld name him on international TV. At his wife's house, the phone never stopped ringing. Reporters and TV crews swarmed like sharks in the front lawn. His wife fled to her sister's home at the gas station. A man said, Joe had a bullseye on his forehead. In his hometown, his parents' friends, his grandparents' friends held a candlelight vigil in the pouring wait for the soldiers accused of torture at Abu Ghraib. The army gave him emergency leave. At the airport, he hugged his wife, Bernadette, said he wanted to go home. The army said anyone could shoot into his house on the roadway, said he could never go home again. He and his wife sent to a faraway base. Oh, okay. Oh, bodyguards for six months. Relatives still haven't spoken to him. He still misses his hometown. Only been home briefly for his mother's funeral. Okay. Oh, you want to? <laughs> All right. Does anyone want to move up and sit down? I'm just going to read one or two more poems. Make it, <laughs> make it short. Make it short. Okay. Uh. Okay. Yeah. Good. Anyone else want to sit in front? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. Make, make yourself comfortable. Oh. But but not that way. Yeah. There's just one right here. There. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Hold it. Sure. Um. I wrote a couple one about Afghanistan and that, uh, Afghanistan and that area. Uh, the poem is about someone you may have heard of, Malayla Joya. She's known as the internationally renowned feminist from Afghanistan. She wrote a biography from which I took this poem. Uh, some of the bravest uh, feminists in the world are from that region. I bet, yeah, shout three times. She said if she should die, remember, she once was a refugee in the filthy tent refugee camp in Iran after a landmine took her father's leg in her first Afghan war. Her family fled to the schools in Pakistan where she inhaled books, inhaled Persian poetry, inhaled Recht, her favorite, exhaled lessons teaching women in the camps. The best day of her life started at 16. She hid her few books under her burqa in her second war. Back home in Afghanistan under the Taliban, she breathed out lessons for girls in an underground school hiding from the Taliban. In her third war, the American bombs decorated the land. The Taliban fled the village. The warlords roamed the capital on trucks. In her fourth war, she stood up to denounce the warlords and the Loya Jirga. They howled, shrieked, threw bodies at, bottles at her. A mob surrounded her house to rape and lynch, lynch her, but she had already fled underground. Her dreams still blossomed into schools for girls in blue uniforms and white scarves. Like her father, she's a rebel fighting on in her burqa, moving from safe house to safe house, trapped between the Americans dropping bombs from the sky and the Taliban on the ground with with their guns. Her parents named her Malayla. Like the first Malayla in the first Afghan-British war, she carries the flag daily into battle. She named herself Joya, like the imprisoned... Afghan poet Joya, she uses words as her weapons, smuggles them out to the world. Malayla Joya will never surrender. If she should die, remember. She asks if you will carry on her work after her death. Then you are welcome to visit her grave. You must pour water on it and shout three times. She wants to hear your voice. Okay. And this is the last poem. I thought it was really important to... uh, There are some very sad poems in this book, but uh, to try to remember peace and imagine peace. And um, in 2006, I went to China. And in South China, I was uh, talking to our tour guide. And I told her that my uncle was in the Korean War in Korea, and her father was in the Communist Chinese army in, in Korea, and we were fast friends, so I thought, you can imagine peace, right? It's 50, 60 years later, but we were in peace, you know. Okay, this is a famous grape juice stand in Baghdad. It's called Zabala's. It's on the main street, like the Wilshire Boulevard of Baghdad, Rashid Street. Grape juice you can't forget. From exile the Baghdad poet sang how, under the shadow of elegant metal balconies on Rashid Street, once they headed to Zabala's for his juice in Baghdad's summer and winter. Zabala and his sons banged mugs of grape juice on trays, sang through a century to bring juice to the protesters gathered against the British in the 50s, grabbed the grape juice at the bar. To Prime Minister Nuri Syed, who stopped at the juice bar. To General Qasim, who came often to drink. Even to young Saddam Hussein, who guzzled the grape juice. Three times yearly, the Baghdad juicers trek north to look at the vineyards in Abril. Now they use huge numbers of grapes. Now the juice stops strokes, heals headaches, abolishes anemia, dissolves heart disease, pacifies the painful stomach. The thieves in exile, remember, after looting the banks, they headed to Zabales for the juice. Al-Qaeda militants, after cruising the streets and dumping the dead body, headed to Zabala for the juice. American soldiers, after their perilous patrols, passed empty cafes, headed to Zabales for the juice in Baghdad, summer and winter. 40 years after the war is over, the children of the refugees, of the poets in exile, of the thieves, of the Al-Qaeda militants, of the American soldiers, all will return to Rashid Street in Baghdad, walk under the shadow of elegant balconies, to Zabala's where his grandsons bang the juice smokes on trays and sing, and the children will all drink grape juice together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So those are my two books, and hopefully I'll have another one next year. Um, I just, before I introduce Lionel Roth, I'd like to say I'm involved in a fascinating group of events in April at nine of them, six of them at UCLA and three at Beyond Brook. It's the first time ever in the city uh, people are doing uh, events on LA poetry in the 50s and 60s and 70s. The Beat Poets in Venice and, the, and an Echo Park group of poets around Tom McGrath, who's a great American poet. Uh, lived on March Street. They're called March Street Irregulars. And there'll be two large, uh, there'll be two large library exhibits for the first time ever in the city. And I'll be on a panel with like seven of the, Wanda Coleman and Paul Vangelisti, a great group. And there'll be a uh, a big event on Royce Hall with jazz, Gore, uh, Ginsburg's cottage, and three wonderful events that s- at Beyond Brook. So I thought I'd mention that because I've long been interested in the history of LA literature and poetry, and when I first met Lionel, he. Roth. He had just published a wonderful book on literary, called Literary L.A. And what was great about it is his family was the Menuins, His mother was Menuin. And she grew up, he grew up knowing uh, Thomas Mann. He wrote an essay about them. And he wrote essays he, he had met Aldous Huxley. And these are just a terrific group of essays that brought it alive. His uncle is Yehudi Menuhin and he wrote a wonderful book on the Menuins, on his family. And he kept on writing book after book. Uh, another your book is Fat Man on the Left, essays about, you know, involved. you were involved at the very end of the beat days, yeah, the very end of the beat days, early 60s, yeah, yeah, I think so. And so he's always been one I shared this great love of LA literature, and he knew more, and I've learned tremendous amounts from him, and his essay writing is delight and a joy, so could you please welcome Lionel Roth. <laughs>
0: Actually, Julie's poetry sounded so mature and dealing with the real world, I'm going to read you the first chapter of my book which is about innocence and adolescence and infantile things that we all live through. So I hope you don't drive me from here. a room. Right. This is from my new book, The Misadventures of Ari Mendelson a mostly true memoir of California journalism. Can you hear me? (coughs) How losing his virginity made Ari realize just how odd Ellie really was. Ari Mendelson's misadventures began not so innocently in the early 1950s in Los Angeles when he was about ten years old. Other than the many memories he had uh, of a school chum named Diana, his fondest memories from Westwood Elementary School were about Groucho Marx coming every afternoon to pick up his granddaughter. All the students would gather around him, invariably Ari is one of them. The great comedian impressed him even more in person than on the silver screen. The argument could be made that Ari was a child of Hollywood and appropriately enough his sex life began early but clumsily with Diana who knew as little as he. Both of them had been in that grasp of a mysterious life force that compelled them to do strange things, such as going to a shed in the backyard next to the incinerator where Ari's family burned his trash. For the first few times they each removed an article of clothing. Then they did they did not know what they did or why they did, or what they were gonna do next. On a later occasion Diana took off her skirt, and in the daring step of taking off her blouse and bra, There wasn't anything upstairs yet, but to Ari, who couldn't stop staring at her nipples, there seemed to be a promise of something very important happening. He'd seen pictures of women's breasts, so he knew what might be expected. Ari took off his pants, but not his underwear. Later in life, Diana became more than adequately endowed, but at eight years of age, this was not the case. She did, however, press her body up against his, and they both stayed close together for a scary moment. They held each other without moving, and when they stopped clutching each other, they knew something special would happen. When they were both nine, their tentative groping no longer occurred only in the shed, but at a little hideaway only the two of them knew about, in a miniature forest in Rancho Park, a large park that had recently been created in some land across the street from the old Fox Studios in Pecon Motor. Grass and trees were planted over many acres, but a few natural grove of trees from when Los Angeles really was a primeval place had been left behind. Ari and Diana returned to her forest hideaway almost as often as they slid into the shed in the back of Ari's house. The first time she sh- shyly grabbed what little was behind a zipper was in a grotto formed by some tree branches through which the sun streamed. The place had the feeling of a cathedral, a cradle of ancient tree roots on the ground and old gnarly tree trunks that soared high above. It was the floor of his cathedral he first actually touched her on the nipples and didn't just stare and she tentatively felt, began to feel um, pulsing in her obliging hand. Over the next years, they were never quite clear exactly what they were supposed to be doing. But they deduced that being naked was the first step because it was especially exciting to take the clothes off together. Invariably, there were occasional tentative gropes. And at one time, Ari was embarrassed when his penis got really hard and he came. He didn't know exactly what he was supposed to do and it was all quite unexpected. She didn't make the connection either, although she had more inkling than he did because she was the main instigator. The loss of Ari's virginity would come, wouldn't come would come until he was nearly a man and with another female. But when he was just a teenager, he felt pure lust on the cathedral floor there with Diana, even though they were miserably uncomfortable in the great tree roots. It was the closest he ever felt to God, as she, for the third time, unbuttoned her blouse and clasped her brawn. he couldn't stop gently touching her breasts. Ari and Diana became inseparable. He would come by every morning to walk her to school. After school, he would escort her home. On weekends, they were all together. Ari's mom, in particular, liked the budding relationship and encouraged it. For young Love suffered a bit when he was 13 and he was set off to a military school at the base of Mount Low in the San Gabriel Mountains. Mount Lowe had a colorful history involving a famed narrow gauge railway and a grand hotel halfway up the mountain built by a man named Lowe. The school was called Mount Lowe Military Academy. There was a stark beauty to the place. The alluvial landfill at the base of a mountain range had vegetation that had been planted on it some years before, so there were lots of trees and brush. But despite the flora and fauna, the overriding sense of a place was being underneath a terrifying, desolate, gothic, enormous geological protuberance jutting out of nowhere. Away from home for the first time, he looked forward to the evenings when he would get into bed and imagine Diana was with him. Just before he went to sleep, Ari was always saving her from some unimaginable catastrophe. He clutched her tightly so she didn't fall down a cliff, uh, or as he often did to save her from some terrible monster. He still hadn't quite figured out what he was supposed to touch or not touch, but even at age Ari decided, that deducted, that breasts were an important part of a woman's anatomy. The students at Mount Law Military Academy were all males. They slept on cots in a big green dormitory. The captain, he had some sort of prosaic American name, but Ari remembered only as a captain, was the supreme authority of the place, especially for an unlucky few once the lights went out. He was an ancient 16-year-old and had an unsettling kind of roly-poly and smooth-faced despotism in everything he did. Everyone was afraid of him, but Ari wasn't quite sure why. The captain never accosted him, although he learned that others had been attacked in some unspecified manner, but they didn't talk about what exactly had happened. It was confusing to him. I knew that strange, mysterious attraction of Diana had to do with the fact that he was male and she was female. He did not grasp males being fascinated by males in that way. Males were dirty and sweaty and unattractive and not particularly graceful, or exciting, or intelligent. But the captain apparently found other males interesting, and he forced his way upon several of the other boys in the barracks after the lights went out. Harry wasn't sure exactly uh, what he did, or any more than he knew what was expected of him with Diana. One day, everyone was called to the parade field, and in a big full dress ceremony, of some type, the captain was stripped of his rank and chestful of medals he carried on his uniform. As far as Ari knew, he disappeared from the face of the earth. The whole experience drove Ari ever more into the fantasies that accompanied him to bed each night. Everything about this school was depressing. The fact that the captain enforced himself to so some of the boys at night especially affected him. He was constantly regarded as weird by the other students because he loved classical music and read books. The other students talked of nothing else but baseball and Elvis Presley. He was under constant attack because he exhibited no interest in these things. Worse, he even left he, he wasn't even left alone when he tried to read a book, instead of watching television or turning on a radio to the classical music station. Sometimes he would read books with a flashlight under the blanket once the dim lights in the barracks went out. But mostly he would escape into his own head when he pulled the blanket up over his body on an uncomfortable cot where he slept. There were only cheap green painted plywood dividers between him and the other students. But at night, he felt some protection from the others. Once taps were played and the lights went off, he could at least pull up the covers to block everything out. When he was alone, he could imagine himself a superhero. Superman was his favorite. And his fantasies continued after he had fallen asleep. In one reoccurring dream he saved his beloved as they fell off a cliff. He always woke up before they hit the bottom. There was always a lot of falling with her in the dreams. Every couple of weeks he came home and he almost always visited Diana. Her father was a music director of a big upper crest Protestant church in West Los Angeles that was still quite splendid. Ari's mother pianist regularly played Bach in that church. It was famous for his large organ. Ari didn't know what Diana thought of his organ. She touched it he hadn't touched her because he didn't see. All of this happened long before Ari lost his virginity. His, mef- his memories of losing uh, his virginity were important to him. It happened a few years after he lost contact with Diana. But Diana is the person with whom it began. When they both became teenagers they met once again and only briefly. It was a fleeting moment and the magic was no longer there. He discovered his next love interest when he turned 16. He was still in high school when he discovered Marxism. He began visiting Dorothy Healy in her home, who was head of the Communist Party of Southern California. She was middle-aged, but she seemed so young and so sexy. He discovered socialism as a result of reading Jack London and Upton Sinclair. He had many philosophical and political questions, and she all seemed to have good answers to these, and she frequently suggested other books were to read. Thus he was introduced to Howard Fass, Herbert Apthaker, W. E. B. Du Bois and with Cavius, John Steinbeck and Sinclair Lewis. She always had tasty food to eat in an icebox. He would visit her for hours. She had the answers to all the great philosophical quandaries that bedeviled him and talked about men and women of considerable wisdom as well. It was obvious that she was not going to be a teacher in these matters. Sad to say, his hunt for love would continue elsewhere. In the early 60s, he became a student at Los Angeles City College and mostly he burrowed in his dreary brick apartment building reading a lot of Dostoevsky and such and thinking about the coming American Revolution that everybody was convinced was inevitable. Somehow, revolution and getting laid were invariably linked. After a while, even the revolution was dimming in importance compared with the pain he was feeling. It was driving him crazy. He couldn't think of anything else. He used to, quote, talk philosophy for hours, but now he talked only of one thing. It was driving his friends crazy. He had two friends in particular, a couple in their 20s, who had taken him under their wing. He was pretty certain a woman would have introducing and her husband was an easy, friendly sort who might have given his permission. But instead, she chose another route. She began to talk to him about what he needed to do to get laid. Her husband also tried to make suggestions. Somebody has to get this guy laid, they said to each other. So both of them they were graduate students at UCL in Physics and Economics, helped them strategize, and they became a cheering section. One night they took them to a party of graduate students like themselves, but also younger people like Ari. Maybe tonight will be your lucky night," she said. Hari got scared as she got closer to the, Ari got scared as they got closer to the party. What happened if it actually happened, he blurted out and then harrumphed at how ridiculous that sounded. Listen, she said, I'm sure you're not the only virgin who will be there tonight. You know, maybe you should be direct about it. I bet if you ask ten women, one will say yes. He was silent as he contemplated the suggestion. Just try it, she said. It's really not that big a thing, her husband said. Even if he was scared, he realized tonight had to be benight. He got tipsy enough to feel confident uh, asking around. He didn't consider if a woman were attached or handsome. One woman slugged him, a couple others seemed to consider his suggestion seriously. (laughs) Finally, one woman, she was younger than most of the uh, women who were there, said nothing. Her face was rather plain looking, her body, but her body was well rounded. He didn't, she didn't smile. She seemed a bit too serious about the subject, but Ari was being picky, wasn't being picky. Okay, she said. Uh, drawing out the O and the K, when you go to my places close by she took him to a four-story uh, brick building that might have been pretty grand 60 years ago, but now had fallen on hard times. It had an ornate lobby that led to a large courtyard full of ivy growing up the walls and tall palms. Each of the apartments looking toward the courtyard had iron balconies that looked a bit too rickety for sitting comfortably. Her apartment was one room and it didn't face out onto the courtyard, it faced another building. Like the dormitory, Mount Low was painted green. A single bulb without a cover hung from a peeling, buckling ceiling. There was a sagging bed in the corner. As a woman addressed, she told him she was not technically a virgin because although she had done it with several guys, she had never had an orgasm. Thus, her virginal status was quite intact. She said she had never been satisfactorily pen- penetrated and could never regard herself as a woman until she had been. He didn't mention to her that he was a certified, bona fide teenage version too, who had never been this far with a woman. But he did mention to her that he was a bona fide revolutionary, who happened to be fascinated by huge breasts. As she unhooked her bra, her enormous breasts, when suddenly unrestrained, they fell and descended towards her stomach more than he would have liked. That night he felt those great pillows of flesh, tipped with enormous rippling nipples, squashing, squishing up underneath him. Are you a virgin? she asked him. He didn't immediately answer, which he took correctly as an affirmative. He couldn't figure out why she was so concerned if they were virgins or not. He was and didn't want to continue to be one. I am too," she said, and then launched again into the explanation of how she figured this was so because, by her own, even though by her own admission she had intercourse with several men. I figure that a woman involves more than just a man sticking his penis inside you. Being a woman means that you have descended into the heavens of a sexual bliss every woman is entitled to," she said. But how about those women who have babies without orgasms, he asked. It was as if he had said the wrong thing. Her back arch, She snarled, I tell you, we're not women. An orgasm is a woman's right, it's a birthright. He nodded, what else could he do? But he was a little uncomfortable with their seeming assumption that he would be blamed if he didn't find her political demand and birthright that night. Can you be the man who does it for me, she asked. I can try, he said, surprisingly aroused enough to have a confidence to believe that he could be that man. She said she would be very thankful to the man able to make her vagina throb and her soul scream with the great prick. She used those exact words, which Ari thought were quaint. Ari apparently was the right man for the right job. After quickly coming twice, he went on for an hour. He didn't, She didn't want him to stop. He didn't get soft. He had an enormous teenage boner and uh, and if he came, which he sometimes did inadvertently, he'd pick right up and start all over again. Several times she was about to come. Ah, oh, she said, just a little longer, a little harder. He agreed, but he couldn't stop the inevitable explosion. It felt like he had filled her up to the point of explosion. He had half expected to see his sperm oozing out of her eyes, ears, nose, as well as her vagina, sloppy with great gobs of semen. And still his boner wouldn't go away, which was a good thing because she hadn't come. Please, she said, keep on going. He was quick enough, he was, he was quickly hard enough once again to do as she asked. He didn't even exit. He just kept grinding away and again and again he came. And again and again he kept going. After all, he had a few hours ago been, uh, up until a few hours ago, had been a virgin. He had a lot to make up for. He came several times that night and a few times she almost came. The key word was almost. Please don't give up. I'm so close, she said. He was getting sweaty and all not all that comfortable. He had no longer was that turned on, but he had a mission to accomplish, and he wanted to succeed. He carried on for eight hours like this, and finally as the sun began coming up, she moaned, groaned, and hugged him until he couldn't move. They both glistened in the summer sweat morning sun. Oh, she said, oh, you came? Oh, I came. You couldn't tell? I wasn't sure. You've been so close to coming so many times tonight. For the first time she smiled, no, that was a real thing. Harry smiled wisely or so he imagined. He saw his young arrogant face on the silver screen as he smiled and he rolled over and slept for a couple hours and he woke again to the sun streaking in from overhead. It must have been noon. He studied her face. It seemed softer, happier if it had been a night before. Maybe he said to myself, I'm gonna be a great new lover and women will come to me from miles around. Perhaps she was not the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, but she was for the moment his. She lay there beside, beside him after a night of intercourse with a smile on her face. Um, she could have been his if he wanted perhaps forever, but he knew he didn't want that. There was something too prosaic and plain and depressing about her. Next time he would get someone better. He deserved better the next time, he told himself. But he felt she should have been honored to have been his first conquest. He never found out if she was thusly honored because he got up and slipped away, never to see her again. He wondered, though, if she'd Ever realize how lucky she'd been to be with him? <laughs> That's uh, the rest of his story is more prosaic. It's about politics and philosophy, <laughs> <laughs> with a few interludes. And he went. You want to ask me a question? I... So
2: that was the first chapter.
0: Yeah.